Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. This week I'm talking to Sheena Cruikshank about parasites that love nothing more than living in the human body. She's a professor at the University of Manchester and specialises in immunity and infection. If you can, there's a link to the description to buymeacoffee.com and you can help the podcast by donating £3 to help keep it going, maybe get me a biscuit, who knows. If you could, also leave a review, that really helps the podcast out. Today, we talk about 50-foot worms in your gut, how pubic lice are declining, and how some parasites might actually make you healthier. Here's our chat. Well, welcome to the podcast, Sheena. Good morning. Nice to see you. Yeah, how are you doing? You all right? Yeah, just 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 being very British about the heat. As yeah, you, as you. yeah, exactly. Or, or worse, very Scottish about the heat. We <laughs> never get heat where I come from. <laughs> I know, that's it. Well, you get burnt alive, wouldn't you? But I, I, I suppose this is quite nice for you because we're going to talk about I say quite nice, we're going to talk about macro parasites, but I imagine for the last year and a half, you've probably been inundated with questions about a certain pandemic. So this will be a nice reprieve for you. Absolutely. It's, it's always lovely to talk about parasites. <laughs> <laughs> it's how I start any day if I can help it, you know. Like... Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> parasite. Yeah, standard. I mentioned macro parasites. I guess that uh, to me means parasites that you can see with the naked eye. And a lot of people will instinctively think, oh, parasites, that's a horrible thing. But are all parasites bad? That's an interesting question. The, the, the term parasite kind of means something that takes from another without necessarily giving anything back. And so that in of itself kind of implies that it's bad. Yet, there are certain advantages that parasites, because they've evolved alongside us, in us, on us, have, have conferred. So there are some examples where being parasitized isn't entirely bad. An example is Gordian worms, that they're like little hair worms that infect okay. crickets. Apparently, they some, re- some research showed that they can help the, the insects stay more um, able to cope with asbestos. Is it asbestos? Anyway, nasty chemicals. Yeah, so yeah, 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 that is. Helps detoxify the chemicals. It may not be asbestos. And I feel very stupid. I'll get all these people writing in. <laughs> um, and it's also been suggested that some parasites may help downmodulate the immune response, um, which, of course, they do because they want to stay inside the host. That's where the, their home is. You don't want to be kicked out of your home. It's where your food is. You want to keep your food going. And what people have started to do is start to research what these products are and if there's advantages to having these infections in certain circumstances. And so these could be used um, in certain therapies. We can talk a little bit more about that if you want. So generally speaking, bad, but there could be some pros. When I was researching for this, I was watching a couple of videos on YouTube where you'd done lectures and... Is it in one of the you mentioned about certain countries that have parasites, their rate of asthma and things like that is very low, whereas if you look at the Western world, it's higher and there's possibly a correlation with parasites? Absolutely. This is, but this has been one of the things that's suggested. So we used to have 
I mean, parasitic worms, it's particularly some of the parasitic worms that are common for this. They are really, really common across the world, affecting a billion people. But in the UK, they're pretty rare now. They used to be commonplace. And we've been working out at Corybank Mill, which is a little um, a cotton mill that was that functioned until early in the 20th century. And we've got medical records from um, apprentices who work there. And, and we've got evidence there that they have worm infections. So that's, you know, what, 150, 200 years ago. So these are things that were here. And if we look at ancient mummies and the ice, the Iceman and, and things like that, we see evidence of these worms. So we did evolve with them. And what they what we know is that since we've got rid of the worms, we're seeing more evidence of conditions where the immune response is going wrong. Allergies is one example. So that's where you are having um, you're reacting to something you should be ignoring. Autoimmunity is another, and that's where you're reacting to, to something that's within yourself. So you're reacting to part of yourself and you shouldn't be, you should be ignoring that. So your immune response has gone completely wrong. And these conditions do seem to be more common in developed countries. And one of the explanations that's been put forward is that that's because we get different types of infection and different exposures than the ones that, that we evolved with. So it's not necessarily just the worms. It could also be things around our microbiome, things around the air around us, things around the food that we eat as well. So all of these things contribute together, but certainly worms have shown some real promise to provide potential therapies against some of these things. And people have been infecting themselves, which they shouldn't, <laughs> with yeah. um, hookworms and whipworms and trying to treat their own um, inflammatory bowel disease or asthma. Um, and, and there's also been clinical trials looking at this. So there's been clinical trials that have used pig whipworm to try and treat inflammatory bowel disease. It's pretty safe, but actually the results have been a bit mixed. It hasn't right. worked as well as we hoped. There's also been trials using human hookworm to treat asthma, which worked very well. And, really? Wow. Uh, multiple sclerosis, which I think okay. also quite well. Wow. And um, another type of inflammatory bowel disease that's called uh, celiac disease. Where yeah. You yeah, yeah, yeah. And that worked really well. We might be popping to the chemist and getting a, a vial of worms at some point. Well, you get, you get, well, it depends on the infection. You wouldn't get the, yeah. the vial of worms. You'd get either the eggs. Okay. Or you would get, in case of hookworm, these, these little tiny um, parasites actually burrow through your skin. Oh, first. lovely. <laughs> and then work their way through your body until they end up in your gut. But they are parasitic blood drinkers. That's what they do. They live on blood. Right. So they're not very nice. And we now know that they make things that might be able to do some of the same jobs. So people are looking at the products that hookworm make and whipworm make and, and some of these other parasites. What we might get is sort of parasite product pills. Okay. That's an, uh, if you excuse the pun, that's probably an easier pill to swallow, isn't it? Like if you say to someone, here's a pill that does this or here's a, a worm, that's going to be a little it's bit. Better. Absolutely. Although people are very attached to their worms in these trials and, and give, give them, them a name. names. Oh, they do. Oh, God. 
why not well you know it's with you all the time because i guess as well once you've got worms presumably that's it like they don't go away because they're going to be breeding inside you and that's you know we i mean how how does the but does the body try and expel them? Like, I mean, I know you were talking about how, how they avoid our immune system, but like, presumably, once you've got them, that you've got them. Um, well, that's what the worms would like to do. So there's okay. lots of different ways that we, 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 we get the worms. So if we take something like whipworm, um, you get that by, by eating infective eggs. The eggs have to become infective. They're not instantly infective. And they will hatch only when they reach the large intestine, they, they actually respond to your microbiome. They react to that and that cues them that they can start hatching. So it shows you that lovely intimate relationship between host and, and parasite. They then have their head burrowed in the lining of the gut and they will go through several molts to grow up into adults that can mate. The adults will mate and produce eggs, but the eggs are passed out so one worm doesn't produce lots more worms inside you. Oh, uh, okay. And the way that your immune response will work is it will be trying to get rid of the gut. And here's where you work getting rid of the worm, rather. Here's where you get this kind of balancing act. So in your gut, you've got a really rapid turnover of the cells that line the gut. So it's a bit like a, a, an escalator, kind of always moving, sloughing off dead cells and new cells form at the base. And that's where the worm's trying to stay. So it's got to keep trying to burrow its way down, but the escalator is continuing to go up. So your immune response turns the rate of the escalator up. So it speeds it up, which in essence makes it even harder for the worm to keep up. At the same time, you start making different mucus. So there's mucus that lines that escalator that makes it quite difficult to get a grip and, and hold on and you change that mucus, you make it a different type of mucus, so it gets really nasty for that worm to survive. So ultimately, you push the worm out, unless it can trick your immune response into doing the wrong thing, in which case it gets to stay in and it doesn't get pushed out. So you can see it's this kind of constant cat and mouse game yeah. between yeah, yeah, yeah. parasite and, and worm. And some parasites are for life, but some parasites will not have a lifelong duration in the host. Even if the immune response doesn't push them out, they will get they will die naturally after a few years. Okay, so it's not always a case that you've got a lifelong partner if you've uh, if you've got one. That that's always good. No, um, no. But if uh, you're in a country where there's lots of eggs and lots of infections, you just get reinfected. Yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just just a case of getting a, a, a new buddy to carry around with you. So I mean, <laughs> I I look because I was originally going to broaden out to kind of all animal parasites, but I thought well, human parasites are are in, in a morbid way. I find them quite interesting. But I know there's a there's a fungus that control. I think it controls ants and it kind of makes them go up branches. And I wondered. Probably not to that extent, but are there any parasites that change our behaviour? Do they make us do anything we wouldn't normally do? Well, that's that's a bit that's a bit of a debated um, topic, to, yeah. to be honest. Yes, um, depending on what you read, the the best characterised parasite is Toxoplasma gondii. So this is a little intracellular parasite. You cannot see it with the naked eye. Okay. And it's one of these uh, parasites that actually does form a lifelong infection. So it's very easy to catch. It's very common across the world. It's probably 
one of the, the most common parasites in the world. And in the UK, it's estimated around a third of us have it. Ah. You benefit from eating contaminated meat that's not been cooked properly, that's been infected with the parasite, or you get it from vegetables or kind of you know garden matter that's been contaminated with cat feces and cat poo has the parasite in it so cats are the penultimate host right. for this for this parasite and because it's got so many ways of getting in and it can affect any host any mammalian species but it can only sexually replicate in the cats the so cats where it wants to get back so this is the only reason parasites will ever change behavior is by and large, they don't want to kill a host, but if the host is going to help them get to where they need to get to sexually replicate, then woohoo, they're, they're well up for it. <laughs> and so in rodents, in mice and rats, which are very common prey for cats, it's been shown that when the parasite um, settles in in the, the host, it forms little cysts in the brain. And this causes changes in the behavior that make the parasite more, sorry, make the host more risk-taking. So they're more likely to go out in the day. They seek out cat pee. Um, and they're really looking for a cat. And there's been some suggestions in the in this in science literature that they um actually get a bit turned on by the smell of cat pee. It can Who doesn't? Who doesn't, Sheena? <laughs> excites little regions in the brain. Um, so this is great because it helps the cat eat the, the mouse. But of course, we're not really prey for cats. So no. we're a bit of a dead end for the parasite. But we have some similarities in our brain biochemistry and it also insists in our brain. So some studies have suggested it does affect our behaviour and they've looked at things around changes in, in anxiety, changes in um, motor performance. So it, there's been suggestions it, it slows down our, our reaction times. So we're more likely to, and again, we're more likely to take risks and it does affect things around some of our neurotransmitters. So some things like dopamine and, and things get affected. Things like melatonin will get turned down. So it, it's having some effects. And this was, sort of suggested that it could be linked to a greater likelihood of being in car accidents. Wow. And studies have also suggested it might be linked to lots of neuro conditions, including anxiety, including insomnia, but more seriously things like um, uh, schizophrenia. So there's lot, lots and lots of links and things around depression, things around suicide. But the good news is, because so many of us have it, that more studies recently suggest that actually it's probably not the parasite doing that in us. It's probably the immune response to the parasite and it's changes that the immune response to the parasite is, is doing. So if we can understand how the immune response is functioning, it might be more important with that. But it, it's a very topical debate. And it's yeah, I bet. And circling around and around it are our behaviors changed or not and I kind of I kind of err towards not okay okay so chances are then if you're a cat owner there's a good chance you've probably got this parasite then well cat 
cats don't have it all the time. No, okay. okay. Most cats aren't infected with it, but they do get around. And this is the, this is the issue. Cats get around. Yeah. So you know, you've got your cat. If you let it out, it will go um, anything up to what one two k. That documentary they did, Secret Life of the Cats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking at how far cats roam. And when they're infected, it's their poo that's the issue. So it's where their poo is. Yeah. And once the poo isn't, again, immediately infected, it will it becomes infected. And the egg, that, well, it's not eggs, the sort of oocyst stage, that's what we call them, in the poo. And that's pretty tough. It can survive for several years. And it can also survive in salt water and wow. water. Okay. So this means that it's got an awful lot of other things so it's not just being a cat owner it's being a keen gardener it's playing in 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 grass it can be in rare circumstances drinking a glass of water so it's it's not just it's not just the cats okay so you're not you're not calling for a nationwide cull on cats then no i don't think my cat would talk to me Oh, you've got a cat. I'll oh, be careful what I say then. Okay, then. So, <laughs> and to be honest, dogs are possibly more of the issue in some ways because they do like to roll and things. Don't they, they do. Yeah, my my dog yeah. loves loves a little uh, cat treat. What, what they leave behind the garden. So, um, yeah, I'm very careful not to let the dog lick my face. So, I, I definitely won't now. Anyway, <laughs> after uh, after knowing all of that, um, I'll c- circle back to worms because we mentioned about like how. Um, they they affect our immune system and whatnot. So why aren't worms common in the UK? If they were common 150, 200 years ago, why are they so rare now? Is it just a case that we've treated them, we get rid of them, or or is something else a factor? Well, to be honest, the, the number one reason is probably our sewage systems. A lot of the worm infections um, are transmitted through what we call the fecal-oral route. So basically, poo to mouth. <laughs> Um, yeah if you are in a country where you haven't got a good kind of water system where water is is sort of taken away and treated and you haven't got toilets you've got latrines or just drops um, or you're openly defecating which is quite common unfortunately in some countries where there's sort of choice um then the parasite is able to kind of life cycles able to be maintained much more much more easily because they do like warmer more humid environments but we know that they could still do quite well in the UK because all our animals still have them yeah so a lot of the species that infect us um sort of similar species the same species but they can't infect us affect our animals so you know we know that we're, we're having to treat our livestock we're having to treat our cats and our in our dogs against these same types of infection. And that can also be a problem because you can end up with areas of land that become unfarmable because they've got so many parasite eggs in them. And then if the parasites become resistant to the drugs that we give them, and this has happened in some parts of Australia, um, then you can't farm the animals in there. You have to let the land recover and let the, the eggs ultimately die. And so there's been little outbreaks, for example, I think there was an outbreak in one of the zoos that we were partnering with. They weren't sure why their giraffes were getting sick. And it was that that similar thing where it was the there was just too many eggs in in moved the animals and the animals were okay. I mean, it wasn't killing the animals. These are not. No, but it wasn't doing them any good. 
it wasn't doing them any no, good. No, no, no. They were a lot happier. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Do you know what the long? So I, now I'm using this fact very dubious because I just googled it. But I'll see if you know. Do you know what the longest tapeworm founding a person was? Or do you want to have a guess? I, I, I've seen reports anything from nine to eleven meters. Yeah, so it, it seems like uh, there's about twenty articles, and they and they all say something different. But the one that I found was I'm going to say this horribly wrong. Uh, Tenia sanganita if that means anything to you. And it was 59 feet long, apparently. And it was found in a chap in Thailand. And he was giving uh, worm, worming tablets and then it slivered out of his rectum, apparently. How much of that is true, I don't know. But the point is you can get some bloody long worms inside of humans, can't you? Yeah, particularly tapeworms are the ones that really get yeah. bigger, I think. And then roundworms are, are not long after that. Now, th here's a fun fact about, uh, I think, <laughs> Thailand. Um, I do a lot of work with um, non-native English speakers who resident in the UK, talking to them about infection and, and, and teaching them about infection. And one of the stories one of my students told me is that in her country, Thailand, um, because they do eat quite a lot of raw fish um, and things like that, the tapeworm are quite common. So the, the doctors used to keep some of the tapeworm samples that were passed out as an example to other people to kind of frighten them and yeah. get them to think about their that what they were doing when they were eating all these these sort of raw pork or or raw fish dishes. So there you go. Yeah, um, it, use the worms to uh, to educate. Yeah, if you saw that, you know, a bit like when someone's got a, a deer on their wall or whatever. But if you had a tapeworm and that right, that's that's living inside you. That would uh, it make you think twice before you had some raw fish, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's a bit like a parasitologist's office, to be fair. Um, yeah, we, we've got lots of examples. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you would, wouldn't you? You'd have to um, You do that. And and moving from worms to, to another parasite that is, is probably fairly well known, but um, I heard, I'm, I'm sounding like a gossip now, but I heard that pubic lice are going extinct in the UK. And I wonder, is, is there any, well, probably, I suppose, Western world in general, is there any truth to that? Or is it just one of those kind of internet myths? I think it's an internet myth. Is it? Um, okay. It, it comes from this, they're, they're pretty rare pubic lice or crabs as people. Yeah. Oh, so they're not, they're not common to start with then? They're, they affect about 2%, I think it's been estimated, of the population. Right. And um, the, I think the idea is that um, they are becoming rarer because the generation that's more likely to have them shall we say yeah been quite great here um likes to go for quite a lot of waxing <laughs> and um, De deforestation yes yeah. yes <laughs> and things and, and and treatment so there's there's less for them to live in but i don't think they have to live in just your pubic hair right so i'm sure they will find somewhere else so i did see that this was being this was being sort of put forward okay but then i did notice that that, that there are other parts <laughs> yeah i say they have a, have a field day in my beard probably i don't know if they do so well on your face i've got no okay. idea I, I didn't do it i'm not an ectoparasite specialist okay all right then okay but, um, fingers crossed but you've got lots of parasites on your face anyway i've got enough i've got plenty we don't need you've any got uh, face bites on your face we no. all have <laughs> so I don't need any more. Well, I mean, as, as of recording this, so this is because this will come out later. This is when lockdown 
has just eased or all the restrictions, not lockdown, the restrictions have eased. And I, I was watching the news this morning with all the clubs have reopened and I thought maybe that could be the comeback for crabs. So this is going to give them a nice little chance to repopulate. Because everyone's going to be... The COVID cases will go up and so will the crabs. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might not make the news, but COVID probably will. Um, <laughs> the other thing, so so my main job is, is I'm, a, I'm a wildlife cameraman and, and photographer. That's what I do. And one of my dreads is ticks not so much because of the ticks themselves but because of of Lyme disease um and I wonder how common is that in the UK is it pretty it seems to be from what I know is it the, the south of England and Scotland and then there's a little bit in between but how, how common is that in the UK it reassuringly doesn't seem to be so common okay. in in the UK it 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 they say there's around 900 cases, but they do think they might be underestimating. It could be a lot. It could be a sort of 2,000 two, two to 3,000 okay. cases. It's difficult because people won't always, you know, not, sorry, the dog just snored. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's not, the, not enjoying the podcast, the dog. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's been very critical. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, so, yeah, two to 3,000 cases may maybe the upper okay limit. and of course the, sim the symptoms you can get from Lyme disease do vary so this of course is the bacterial infection that tick bites can give you when when they when they bite you and some people aren't too bad with Lyme disease and of course some people um, have quite a severe reaction which could have some repercussions later and some people get these sort of long-term conditions which possibly are a bit like the kind of thing that we're talking about with, with long COVID. Oh, where, right. you know, I, I suspect it, they're all very under-researched, I think, and yeah. I'm not an expert on Lyme disease, but no, okay. there's, there seems to be these phenomena where you get infections and then you get these post-syndromes. And with COVID, of course, we're getting a much bigger number of that. And we're seeing a lot of people with long COVID and there is evidence that some of these are actually down to a bit of an autoimmune reaction. Right. So your immune response is, is, is reacting against yourself. It's been triggered by the infection. And I do wonder if, if actually that's what's happened with some of these, these, these individuals who get this sort of longer right. Lyme disease. Yeah. But yeah, I've, I've been treated for um, suspected Lyme disease as well. So I'm, I'm with you on that one. I'm have you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. Because I was reading as well. I think it depends on the, the, the host parasite. So if a tick goes on a rodent, I think that's where it picks it up or that's where it develops. But then if the tick bites something like a lizard or a deer, it cures the tick of... Of light. I don't know if you've come across this. Have you heard any of this? So um, you could be right. You could be right. So, I really haven't. So again, this was just a YouTube video. So whether whether that is, uh, you know, I'm sure they researched it. But apparently, with uh, and, and do do the research if you're listening to this. But yeah, it depends on their first host. If the the tick nymph, I think it's a nymph they call it. Um, if it feeds on a rodent, then a person, you've got a good chance of, of getting Lyme disease. But if it feeds on something like a lizard or, or a deer, something in the chemistry of their blood uh, cancels out the Lyme disease, I'm told. And that's one of the reasons why um, there's parts of America where Lyme disease is, is non-existent pretty much because there's a high lizard population. But then there are parts of America where it's really common because there's lots of rodents, which I thought was quite quite interesting no there we go I, I mean it's bacterial infection so it's not the tick that's the issue it's no 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 yeah. it's it's the thing it that kind of, 
spits out at you because obviously it, that that that's the problem. And I think it's yeah. a bit like I mean they're not a parasite, but horsefly bites. Oh god, they're nasty bastards, well. aren't they? Absolute bastards. I'm not a fan of horsefly. Legs where I come from, and yeah. I do think that's quite a nice term for them because they are evil, but they they spit out at you as well. Yeah. That's where you get horrible. I, so it, it it's the spit. Because they sort of they soar into you, don't they, horseflies? You know, they yeah. really go for it. I, I had one bite me once on my arm. It was a big bugger and smacked it without even thinking. It just carried on. It didn't even move. It was just kind of like, do you mind? I'm having my lunch. You know, I was intimidated by this horsefly. Even mosquitoes, actually. I mean, obviously, it's a different. It's completely different. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, there's a um, video that I used to show my, my students of a mosquito biting. So it was a close up video and the, the mosquito was infected with fluorescence malaria parasites, plasmodium parasites. So you could see the the kind of the kind of it kind of probing in and it kind of it kind of stuck itself in yeah. and then it did it again and then again and the sort of blood that was coming up in they find a vein and they have a drink. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good yes. video. Yeah, no, I'll give that a watch. <laughs> um have you have you heard of the Lone Star Tick? Have you ever come across that one? The what, sorry? The Lone Star Tick. Have you ever heard of that? No. No, Tell okay. Okay, right. I've, I I I I feel bad trying telling you about these things, but uh, yeah. So the Lone Star Tick is a tick in America that has an enzyme uh, in its bite and it makes you allergic to red meat. So uh, if it bites you, you 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 physically become ill if you try and eat uh, steak or, or pork or, or lamb or anything like that. And uh, there's a worry among Americans because it's becoming more uh, common. But I find that amazing how one bite from a little, I, I, I assume it is the ticks. Uh, I don't know if it's a parasite inside the tick that causes it, but it's the enzyme inside its saliva, I think. And it makes you allergic to red meat, which I think is bonkers. Absolutely. Give it a Google. If you're listening to this, give it a Google. It's Try and, and tell us about it. Cause I, yeah, no, I'll, I'll have a look at that one. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Later. Well, I'll, I mean, I'll, maybe that'll be good for climate change. Who knows? Well, well. you know, if you're a militant <laughs> vegan, then you just get a load of these Lone Star ticks and start, you know, flicking them out. That's the way to do it. Um, I'll end, exactly. I'll end on this on this last question um, on mosquitoes. So mosquitoes are probably the best known parasites but it's obviously the, the malaria inside, which is the, the real problem. And it's the females that carry this. So they're the, the, the real villain. I feel like a lot of people will have heard of malaria. They'll be aware that it's more prevalent in places like Africa, but they don't actually know what it is. So, so what is malaria and what does it do to you? Malaria is, is the term for the infection caused by the plasmodium parasites. These are little intracellular parasites actually related to toxic plasma the of course they family. are of course they are <laughs> they are all the good ones yeah and <laughs> um, that was that was a fickle statement don't complain um so the the parasite infects the female of the anopheles mosquito species there are of course many species of mosquito and the the female needs these blood meals to to nurture her eggs and um they there's four main species that infect humans. The ones that, that, that we hear most about is Plasmodium falciparum. That's one of the nastiest ones, but there are a couple of other species. There are different Plasmodium species that infect animals that don't 
affect us. And when the, the, the female mosquito bites us, it can inject some of the parasites into us. So the parasites develop in the mosquito gut and they end up in the mosquito salivary glands. And then that's, that's how it, it kind of spits them in. And these mosquitoes um, quickly leave our bloodstream and, and toodle off to our liver where they, they grow up a little bit. At this point, apart from a bite, we feel fine. It's only when they come out of the liver and start infecting our red blood cells, that's the cells in our body that carry oxygen, that we start to notice things because they infect the red blood cells and they, they start to destroy them because it's like a little kind of, they, they just basically, it's a bit like a, a virus, but it's not a virus because they're kind of reproducing inside the red blood cell, then they lies and then they go and infect a whole load of other red blood cells. And so as that happens, that's when we get symptoms. And some of the, the things that can happen with the red blood cells can be quite serious because they can kind of um, clump up together. You get these little aggregates forming these little clumps that can cause little blood vessel blockages. So in some of the most severe cases, you also get this, this problems with your breathing, sort of rapid breathing. And of course, but the symptoms what everybody knows about are sort of around anemia and kind of the awful fevers and things. And the, the, of course, once, once we're getting all these symptoms, we're ready to be um, pass on the infection to others, which of course, when the mosquito then has its drink, it's able to start the whole process again. So it's a really nasty, infection and it's responsible for a lot of mortality a lot of death in a lot of countries and of course it's one of the things that that there's been a great deal of effort to try and eradicate and deal with and we're getting closer with vaccines there's some very very promising vaccines that are on sort of last stages of trial okay. and we will see but it does do a lot to evade the immune response so it is tricky but i think it's one of the best funded yeah. conventions oh, yeah. because of course it affects a lot of our soldiers when they go to places now worryingly mosquitoes of course are one of the insects that does well with climate change and so the kinds of places it likes to breed are much more accessible now and so we are seeing mosquitoes starting to these mosquitoes starting to come back into Europe um, and certainly other breeds of mosquitoes are also coming more and more into Europe and those are the breeds that that the IEDs day biting breeds that spread things like Zika yeah. and dengue fever and they are very very much coming into Europe because they're even more robust than Anopheles and this is all part of climate change. So there's a chance you know X amount of time we might see these back in the UK or in the UK. We might say. well do. I mean, certainly um, the, the the mosquitoes have been described in the UK, particularly in the south, but we haven't got the disease no. here for that life cycle to be continuing. So we're getting the conditions, but the diseases aren't there yet. No, we. I, I had a, a guy on. I don't know if it would be last week because I don't know what the order I'm doing yet. But we were talking about garden ponds. And obviously, you know, the advice is let's get lots of garden ponds for wildlife. But as climate change happens and potentially these, these mosquitoes come over, you might not want lots of garden ponds uh, because of these uh, of these guys. Although I do know one of the ways that they reduce the risk, certainly in warmer climates, is they stock the aptly named mosquito fish. And these are like a little guppy and they love eating mosquito larvae. 
And that's one of the ways that they combat um, the disease. Because obviously, if you don't have the mosquitoes, you don't have the disease. So um, that's one way of fighting it is, is stocking these little tiny but, fish. But also, you know, mosquitoes are important pollinators. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, the males all, are. You know, all the mosquitoes are bad and the males are are, are good. So it's, it's that kind of fine balance between yeah. bad and good. And this is, there's a lot of interest in Wolbachia, which is almost like a parasite of parasites. And Wolbachia infects mosquitoes and it can make them resistant to um, infections like dengue ah. or, or malaria. So this is being used to see whether this could help tackle some yeah. of the diseases so that's that's another approach that's being done and genetically modified mosquitoes of course that can't breed so there are approaches so that would make more sense because everyone except malaria is a winner then the mosquitoes don't get eradicated and we don't get it so that's sort of the, the no best. but they are they, they can be emasculated as a, as a process of the infection it's not all a nice infection no no i, I bet I bet. Well, look, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure and slightly horrifying talking to you for the last half an hour, working out all these uh, these parasites. But yeah, it's been absolutely great. And thanks for coming on. No problem. And I uh, hope you don't feel too itchy now. <laughs> that was Professor Sheena Cruikshank. I'm fascinated by weird stuff like that. And the fact that our bodies can play host to an whole ecosystem of species is both terrifying and amazing. Now I'm always on the lookout for new guests and people to chat to on the podcast and it, although it's a nature podcast that's quite a broad term whether it's art, science, filmmaking. So if you've got any suggestions feel free to send us a message and let us know who you'd like us to hear on the podcast. Next week I talk to wildlife photographer Dan Rushton as we cover fieldcraft and the overpopulation of deer in the UK. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll catch you next Tuesday. Cheers.